Welcome to the Plebeian Power Hour with Tipper and Kim. We are going to be doing part two of the Cold War. When we left you in part one, we were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of the amazing things that happened after that or because of that, including... Yeah, so the crisis averted, but in 1963, they actually built, they called it the hotline between the, the two countries. The red telephone. Yeah, so you see the red telephone in all Batman sorts of movies, got one. whatever... <laughs> You know, the president can pick up the phone when he gets the call from the USSR. That They built that so that they could have that level of communication to avoid any miscommunication. Because they're both nuclear powers, and at the time they are the only two nuclear powers, yes? Possibly. So I don't remember when other countries, at, at, this is the point where other countries start getting nuclear powers. Yeah, and right so, now there'd probably be like 500 red phones. Yeah, and, and also keep in mind, you know, the, we talk a lot in U.S. and USSR, but there there is kind of a, you know, you've heard the term first world, second world, third world. Yep. That That's a Cold War term. And the first world was kind of the U.S. and its allies, Britain, France, you know, whoever else. And the second world was USSR and its allies at the time, you know, Poland and China and whoever else. And the third world was everybody else. So oh, people a lot of times no use the third world to mean like a poor country. Yeah. That was never the intent. The third world was these Just guys the don't have a dog in the fight. You know, they don't care. Wow. And a lot of it That's really was, you know, it, some of it was people who wanted to be left out and others were people that, you know, were either too far away from the conflict or, you know, they, they just weren't involved. And some of them were because they didn't have the structure and facility yeah. to, to join this. And so, Third world situation. a lot is essentially used to talk about poor countries. That was not what it was. Okay. It, it was people who didn't have a side in the Cold War fight. So, so right after the Cuban Missile Crisis and the hotline is put in, tell everybody what is going on in the Cold War. Um, so the Cold War still has quite a few things going on, but one of the things that happened, so... Going back, Khrushchev gets kind of forced out of power in 1964. And, and Khrushchev was kind of an anti-Stalin sort of leader. He mm -hmm. didn't like the way Stalin ran things. He wanted, he would be more of what I would call like a true believer sort of person, is he thought, you know, communism can stand on its own merits. And he still did a lot of the sort of things, you know, the, it's not like they had free press or anything like that, but you, the opposition didn't get, you know, shot and you know, you didn't get sent to the gulag for the same offenses. He had kind of a, a different approach. The other thing that was kind of going on, too, is that there was what was called the Sino-Soviet split. It's China decided they weren't necessarily happy with the the leadership. So initially, the idea with the communist state... They didn't state, like Khrushchev. Is that what you're saying? They didn't like Khrushchev, mm -hmm. but they also didn't like... I, I think they wanted to be... They liked the Stalinists, so Mao was mm -hmm. a Stalinist. And he was keep oh, he people was under rough. control yeah. and, you know, that sort of thing. Interesting. I've never made that connection until now. And so there was kind of this ideological split between China and Russia. And they started having tensions. And there were actually troops built up between, you know, on the borders between the Soviet Union and China during this time. So they they weren't very friendly. They weren't enemies and you can kind of tell because one of the the next big thing that happened in the cold war was the vietnam war and this is another one of those things that we could have 20 podcasts on <laughs> the vietnam war all by itself but we're only going to be talking about it briefly kind of we're talking about it in the context of the cold war right just glancing over it brushing over the top of the vietnam war which was Gigantic and huge. Yeah, this was a very big conflict, and it it had its conflict went back, you know, long before. Like it was nineteen fifty five, where and, it's starting to like be a full blown war. Yeah, and this, I mean, the U.S. is not involved at this time, but but they are having a full blown war. And the U.S. did send; they had military advisors and other people, and they had. You can go look at like their casualty counts from yeah. Vietnam, and they have people. They have casualties going back before the U.S. officially started the Vietnam War, which officially happened in 1965. Mm -hmm. So, so that's when Brezhnev 
becomes the leader. Yeah, so Le- Leonid Brezhnev is now the leader, and I think he, he has kind of a hardline approach to things. And he ends up coming up, and, and he doesn't do it at this point, but he does it later where he has uh, the Brezhnev doctrine, where he says, you know, any outside force who comes into any one of our socialist you know, countries gives us the right to respond with military force. And, and he kind of retroactively calls on it for things, not necessarily the Vietnam War, but there's another conflict that happens uh, in Czechoslovakia. But let's talk about the Vietnam War and how the U.S. ended up getting involved. Yeah, lightly, because <laughs> this, again, could be ours. Yeah. So... The U.S. involvement started in... 1955. Yeah, so oh, it started especially. actually in 1964 mm-hmm. in something called the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Mm-hmm. And the Gulf of Tonkin resolution is what brought the U.S. officially into the war. So in 1964, there were destroyers stationed around there. Like we said, the U.S. had forces there. They were not you know, participating in the fighting. But right. They, were, they, have, they started sending military aid to South Vietnam in 1954. Yeah, so they had some destroyers that were out there, and they were in the Gulf of Tonkin, which is uh, a gulf that borders uh, North Vietnam, which was under communist control. And there's open waters there, which are, you know, what, what's it called? I think open waters is the term, but it, <laughs> it, it means, you know, anybody's free to use those waters. They aren't part of anybody's territory. International waters. International waters. That's mm-hmm. what I was looking for. So supposedly, you know, the U.S. side of the story is that they were out in international waters and uh, a bunch of North Vietnam, you know, Vietnamese ships, came, you know, started approaching one of their destroyers. What the, you know, came out later is that the U.S., I think, first fired some warning shots against the destroyers. Uh, I feel or, like or a lot the... of these countries don't understand a warning shot. So maybe it's a bad, maybe it's a bad idea. It's so true, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we almost had nuclear war because of warning shots before. <laughs> we need to broadcast. But can you imagine somebody comes up to you and says, just so you know, we're going to shoot at you. We're not shooting at you, but just, just let us. Like, don't, some, like, don't shoot back. powder that, like, pops out. So they're like, oh, I see. Yeah. It's a purple powder. That's the fake shots. Dude, don't shoot <laughs> back ever not just when, terrible when we do this. Shots. This, is, this isn't for real. <laughs> so the U.S. fires warning shots, and they are fired upon. Yep. And uh, they respond, you know, by firing back. And then supposedly they say there was a second incident, and the second hmm. incident didn't. There's no record that it actually happened, but there's radio communication of a destroyer saying, "Hey, we're under attack," and they can't find records that that destroyer was ever under attack. But after that second destroyer radioed in and said they were under attack, the U.S. said, all right, you know, this is unacceptable. And they started the, you know, they had the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And, you know, the wording in it, they says, you know, whereas the United States is assisting the peoples of Southeast Asia to to protest their freedom and has no territorial, military, or political ambitions in that area, but desires only that these people should be left in peace to work out their destinies in their own way. Now, be it resolved that we're going to war. So they're, they're trying to say, hey, we're not doing this. You know, we're not trying to take anything over. We're trying to give these people the, the ability to run their own, you know, government. That's the official response. And the U.S. goes and sends troops into Vietnam. And 1961. Well, 65. 1965? So that's when, so they had troops there before, but they didn't really have any fighting. Starting I in 1965 the <laughs> is when the real the big stuff. war starts happening. But so, they started sending troops in 1961. Yeah, the troops were there, and they were there to assist the French. They were uh, not there, you know, they, they there wasn't a lot of fighting. There weren't a lot of casualties. But starting in 1965, uh, the fighting and the more. casualties start happening. So I think in the Vietnam conflict, I think 58,000 troops were killed. Prior to 1965, there's like 200 total deaths. 
and after 1965, they, they sent him by the south. It, yeah, they and, even had a, a draft. Yeah, there were 500,000 troops the U.S. sent over there. So this is kind of interesting, because if this war begins in this way, I mean, this is probably for another time, but it is kind of amazing that it, the United States went at it that hard. It, it really is, and I tried to get some information, because it's one of those things that looking back on history is really hard to understand, because we have this... Who was the president at this time? So in 65, it was LBJ. So LBJ ah, yes, that was explains the one. a lot. That, it, that does explain a little bit. <laughs> if we bit. recall his press conferences <laughs> earlier. Yeah. So one I of think the, that that was just his that, fashion of life to be like, oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. And, and he goes on and specifically, like, there's talks. It, it's so interesting. The, the talk that I saw was actually between Nixon and um, the USSR. Mm-hmm. And it really became you know, we can't lose this fight. You know, this, it'll look bad if we lose this fight. And it's a terrible reason to fight. You know, like, mm-hmm. it, it, this is one of those, this is a black guy, I think, in the U.S. history. And, yes. and keep in mind, if you go back and look at some of the previous history, you got North Korea invaded South Korea. Yep. You got uh, Russians went into Cuba and put nuclear, you know, missiles. So there are a lot of people who think, yeah, we should be doing this. You know, this fight against communism. Well, we have been is... a hero in every war we've been in until Korea. Well, and even with even Korea, with Korea, in theory, we're there to we protect. You know, we were asked to go there right. by South Korea. And, know, and help, even though being it was bullied. essentially stalemated, and it wasn't necessarily like yeah. a solid win. But, but South Korea, like if you look at what yeah. happened, South Korea is probably pretty happy with the result. But then Vietnam, it's kind of an anomaly. Like, I think America yeah. was like, oh, yeah, we can win. We can go. We can help. We can whatever. But. It is an anomaly, too, because it really is the U.S. and the USSR are the major superpowers. The U.S. is generally considered to be the biggest at mm-hmm. one point, and, and possibly at this point, the USSR has the biggest military. Yeah. But the U.S. has technological advantages and other Financial things. Financial advantages. And they're considered the biggest, you know, country, you know, in the world. And they go in to fight the Vietnamese and they essentially lose. Oh, yeah, because it was, you know, guerrilla warfare, which they should have looked back to the United States and seen that that's yeah. what they did to win the Revolutionary War. But the terrain, the disease... The mental impact that it had on people. There are some crazy, crazy stories from the Vietnam. Yeah, and one of the things, like you said, it, it's a lot of guerrilla fighting. So there's a there's a communist force in the South called the Viet Cong. Yep. And they are essentially no. just normal people. So the North has the Viet Minh, I think is what they're called, and the South is the Viet Cong. So Gosh, the, the North is under Ho Chi Minh. And but the the southern has their own communist fighting group, you know. That, oh, I see. Yes. And, and these are the guerrilla fighters that are fighting in the south, and they're supplied by the north, which is really means they're supplied by the USSR and China. So they're getting anything. arms pumped down from the north, called something called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Sure, I know. And that they're going one. through other countries and bring, you know, and they're yeah, bringing was, these arms in. It was in. not. Through Vietnam, the trail is yeah. in the countries next to it. Which I can't remember if it's Cambodia or Laos or something, but mm-hmm. you know they're using these other countries to supply arms down to these guerrilla fighters who are using tactics. You know, they booby trap things and they'll hide in, you know, among civilians. And you know, women and children are joining the fight. Yes, and we're gonna have to do one on this because I need to learn more about this because I. I'm not as cut up as I want to be, but I do know that one of the troubles is that because women and children joined the fight, because everyone was fighting, they didn't know who they were fighting, and they started fighting everyone. Yeah. And so they are slaughtering entire villages because they've come across villages where the entire village is fighting them. And so... And they don't they don't fight, you know, face-to-face. The, the, when you go into the village, oh, the villagers are just like, hey, we're just villagers. And then, you know, once they 
have the opportunity, then they do their kind of sneak attacks or they booby trap things. You had Napalm and Agent Orange. There was a lot yeah. of nasty stuff. It, there yeah, really is. There. Like, this is its own, you know, yeah, several podcasts. In, in of, fact, Lots there's... of mental illness after this one because of how how hard and crazy everything was. Yeah, and the other thing with it, so so keep in mind that, you know, in 1973, the U.S. officially leaves Vietnam. Fighting continues, because keep in mind, there is a South Vietnamese force that doesn't want to be communist. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the U.S. was helping them out. Once the U.S. leaves, they fall within a year, yeah. you know, essentially. And, and then it becomes a, a communist, communist country. country. So the effects of the Vietnam War was were, were pretty devastating. Like, oh, you know, yeah. this was, number one, in the U.S., there were tons of protests yep. against the war. Lots of people coming out protesting, saying we shouldn't be there. You know, we don't have a right to be there. We're, we're killing innocent people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have news reporters who go out and are capturing, Horrible uh, stuff. you know, a, a lot of the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of that stuff ends up getting reported back. It's true. And, it was a very public war. And it was across the media in a way that no other war had been shown. Because we had more technology at that point. We had more ability to show things and so it had a bigger effect on the people back in at home and it's just nasty yeah it it was pretty nasty and it really left the u.s in kind of a bad position so this probably was a swing you know for the the soviet side in the cold war it's vietnam was terrible for so many reasons they lost hundreds of troops. They kind of got embarrassed because they lost to this small country, you know, even though it's being supplied by, uh, you know, China and USSR. And they, the the morale, you know, even across the U.S., things get pretty bad. Yeah, because, I mean, there was, there was nothing from the United States point of view that was a positive that came out of it. There was nothing you could say, but at least, you know, like yeah. you could with Korea, you could say, well, we didn't win, but, but at we least we kept the South Korean At safe. least we kept it even. Yeah. You know? and, and, and really, it, it ended, the South Korean War ends exactly the way I would think. That's the right. Korean Let's War. call it a win then. <laughs> it, in a way, it is, <laughs> because it really was the North invaded. The yeah. South says, help they us out. And, them right and we out. helped the South mm-hmm. out. And the border stayed exactly the same. No territory was lost. In the Vietnam War, the the South lost. Yep. You know, it, it ended up falling to communism and became communist. So, so at this time, I believe that because the U.S. is defeated, the Soviets kind of chill out a bit. Well, I'm not sure that that's true because one of the things that happens in 1968 is uh, Czechoslovakia, they have what's called the Prague Spring Movement, Spring apparently pops up in lots of movement names, but what it was was they had a guy, his name was Alexander Dubček, and he kind of became the head of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia and took leadership, and he was a very moderate person. So he started restrict or loosening restrictions on media and travel, and mm-hmm. and, um, and, and he even, like, you know, split the country into, you know, like two republics and then was going to let them kind of govern themselves. And the USSR said, yeah, nope, no way. And they ended up, uh, the Warsaw Pact countries. So the Warsaw Pact was a response to NATO and it involved uh, a similar sort of thing where you had, you know, Russia and Poland, Belarus, you know, all these Soviet uh, countries uh, had the same, sort of agreement as NATO. And what they did is they kind of banded together. They sent 500 troops, 500,000 troops, sorry, into Czechoslovakia to suppress the rebellion. And Dubček, he just said, hey, guys, don't don't fight. You know, you can't win the fight, don't fight. So only like 72 people were killed. But it really, this was one of those things, you know, when I was talking about the Brezhnev Doctrine is, when he's saying, "Yeah, we're we're going to respond militarily," you know, even if anything threatens one of our socialist 
states. So I think they were pretty emboldened. It's just that after the Vietnam War, I think the U.S. side That's what I was, became I think, a little more passive. I didn't really know about this Czechoslovakia piece, but I, I was thinking against the yeah. United States. But, so, the, so the Soviets were feeling brave. Yes, you say? The Soviets, I think, were feeling, you know, like they were kind of in charge and running the, the ship. You know, the U.S. just kind of lost in Moscow. Or, or Sorry, I, my next note is Nixon goes to <laughs> Moscow. So Nixon, Nixon actually travels to yep. Moscow in 1972, which at the time, Vietnam War is still going on, and they're talking a lot about that. But this is kind of a symbolic yes, gesture. And, uh, and the, the favor was returned. The gesture was returned. Yeah, so then Brezhnev, a year later, he travels to Washington. And then one of the things that starts happening, and this is actually, this had actually started happening earlier. This started in the 60s, is uh, what's called the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, or SALT treaties. And there were two of them. And what they started to talk about was how do we bring down, you know, like, let's quit building up our arms. You know, we, we can't just keep, increasing our you know arm you know our, our military powers and it wasn't necessarily military it was all focused around like missiles so one of the things that happened you know like we said earlier mutually assured mm, destruction. destruction one of the things that started happening is the u.s started looking into ways to shoot down missiles yeah and the missile defense system yeah and then what you know, the Soviets say, yeah, do you want to take that one? No, okay. I don't. I'll just keep going. Because my notes are so all over the place <laughs> that I'm like, I know I have it in here, but where is it? But um, I do know because I was checking the dates. So whenever I come at these these things, I mean, this one had so much information. Yeah. There's just no way to, to cover it all. But I, I ask a question, and I'm like, well, what about this? What about that? Why, why would missiles in Cuba be so scary? Oh, because we have no missile defense system. And because they had missiles in Cuba trained at them, they created a missile defense system that would be able to shoot down any missiles that came from Cuba or from any kind of ships that were off the coast that developed later. But mostly they started it there. However... We talked about this a few a few podcasts ago that Russia has come out with a new missile, a hypersonic, a hypersonic missile that can beat anyone's missile defense systems. So there is that. Yeah. <laughs> so they tried to have these treaties in place, and they worked on a couple of them. And so they had these strategic arms limitation treaties, and they talked about limiting anti-ballistic missiles, the missile defense system. And then in the second one, which was happening in the 70s, they were talking about limiting, you know, submarine-launched ballistic missiles and intercontinental ballistic missiles mm -hmm. and, you know, this other type of missile called the MIRV, which would split up and... Yeah, and they, they use those a, a lot. And, and so they were saying, hey, let's limit the number and it really is kind of amusing because they you know you, you sit together in a room and say you know how about a thousand what if we all each had a thousand <laughs> you know and they just come up with a number all right we're allowed to have 1500 huh? and so they come mm -hmm. up with these weird numbers that i don't know but they also nobody abided by this nobody and in fact the second treaty was never ratified by the u.s senate because because the it, Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Oh, And yep. when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, the, you know, you're not going to pass something saying, hey, we're going to limit our arms while somebody is doing these, you know, uh, uh, offensive, you know, maneuvers in, it wasn't like U.S. territory, but it was just kind of neutral territory at the time. So I do have, I finally found in my notes that the missile defense system was put in place in 1967. So the Cuban Missile Crisis is in 1962. So it yeah. took them five years to create it. Um, I'll just throw that in there because I finally found it. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And so we have it by things. the time the USSR invades Afghanistan in 78. Yeah, so the USSR invades Afghanistan. We have, and we're supposed to be limiting this because the interesting thing is, you know, you go to somebody and say, hey, we want to have peace, and the best thing that they come up with is, all right, let's make sure that we can both wipe each other out. You yes. Know, that, that's, the, that's exactly what they're doing with some of these treaties, is saying, I don't want you to have the ability to defend against my nuclear weapons, because if you do, then you can attack me with impunity. Yeah. So. And, and yes. So I want to be able to make sure that I if you attack that. me, I attack you. Uh -huh. And that was kind of, 
and, and that's kind of the scary thing when you know people talk about the hypersonic missiles. It's not necessarily that they have you know a technological advantage. It's that in theory they can attack us and we can't attack them. Yep. But we have different methods, you know, the submarines and the other That's ways. That's right. I, I do think we still have the ability. So I would like to pretend we also have a hypersonic missile. We, we will. <laughs> we will. Trust me. It is in the works. I'm, and, and I don't have any knowledge of that. No. But trust me anyway. It did take us a long there's time. There's no way we're not building one. In fact, I think we've said we're building them. I think that's why they're pushing so hard on fusion. Yeah. Fission. Fission? Uh, so... Fusion. It's fusion. Mm -hmm. Fission is what we already have, right. and fusion. And the reason I, I think, think that you push so hard on fusion is is it's the it's the energy. You know, like we don't need right. nuclear weapons. We don't. We have all the destructive power we need. What if we can give free energy? We can solve a lot of problems. So, in the, in kind of the way you know you talk about the Marshall Plan is let's build up people's economies and then they won't fall you know to, to communism. If you can give people free energy and do stuff like that, you're, you're really building just a better world where people can, aren't going to want Can you imagine a time that the world is actually not in any kind of conflict? I used to. I can't. I used to think that was definitely possible, and now... I think there are some people that just like the drama, I, and you're not going to get rid of that, I even think if a they lot have of their people need something that... that the feeling like, you know, you're the good guy and whatever, mm -hmm. to me, is kind of like a drug, is people want that. You know, yeah. well, I want to feel, and, and I think that's what a lot of the people, you look at, or power to me, like a power. lot of the protests, you know, both sides, the January 6th, the, you know, Black Lives Matter, is these are people who feel like, you know, hey, we're They're doing something good, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're the good guys, and I think that that sort of mentality is never going to go away. And I used to believe that, you know, people will be really happy with a, a nice economy and a nice way of life. But I think a lot of people, that's just not enough. Yeah. So anyway, getting back to Afghanistan is this kind of turns into the USSR's version of Vietnam. Is they go in and then they can't get out and they can't win. So the reason that they went in is there were some, uh, there were a couple leftist regimes that were kind of in power, and they started fighting, and then the Mujahideen, or whatever it's called, formed, which was the resistance fighters that were fighting the government. So the USSR went in to stop the infighting between the two you know, left parties and to put down the Mujahideen, which was fighting those government you know, powers. So they went in, and it was similar in a way that they just... You know, the only way these people can fight, you know, they don't have tanks. So yeah. they're not going to have a tank battle. So they're not going to just stand in front of the tanks. So it turns into, you know, guerrilla warfare and a whatever Vietnam-like quagmire is yep. what's and <laughs> that in my notes. In similar ways, the U.S. starts pumping weapons into the resistance fighters. Right. And they end up giving them weapons that let them shoot down, you know, Russian you know, helicopters and planes and let them not even the battlefield because it, it never really gets even. Yeah. But it makes it so the USSR can't win. So the USSR stays in there for like 10 years and, you know, you follow the history out. Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. just, there's so many stories that start just at this point. Yeah. And then branch off. So that one was kind of, you know, the black eye for the Soviets. And one of the things that happened around the same time is in, in 1980, so the USSR invaded Afghanistan in 1978. In 1980, they were holding the Olympics in Moscow. And the U.S. said, yeah, we're not going. And 65 other nations joined in said, we're not going because you're, you've invaded Afghanistan. What was kind of amusing to me is, you know, Afghanistan went. <laughs> but, but but keep in mind, like the government was actually pro USSR or pro, you know, they, oh, they didn't have the problem. Probably it was, shoving people there. Yeah. It, so it's not necessarily that this was a fight against Afghanistan as a country. This was a fight against the Afghani people who didn't want to be ruled like that. So that was kind of a a, a big thing for Moscow's. To them, that was. They felt like that was kind of dirty fighting, is 
hey, the Olympics is supposed to be out of, you know, the realm, and you guys are making, I don't know, maybe cultural warfare against us with this. And so in 1984, the Olympics were in the U.S. and the USSR. Was like, All right, we're not going to your Olympics. How do you like that? And everyone's like, yay. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think anybody cared. but And now they're not allowed to go. <laughs> they yeah. have to go as like a special different kind of group because they cheated so much. <laughs> So then there was another thing that happened in 83 that I wanted to bring up just because it, it, to me, this was the second scariest thing, you know, the time when the U.S. got close to nuclear war, but not a lot of people know about it. Mm -hmm. And there was, in 1983, the, the U.S. would always, like, annually hold military training exercise with, with their NATO allies. And, and where is this happening? So this is happening in Europe. And so okay. a lot of this is happening in... Um, you know, like Germany and other places like that, which which reminds me there's some other German stuff that we kind of skipped over. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to go back and talk about that first because it. one of the big things is the Berlin Wall going up. Oh, that that's so, right. I can't believe we missed that. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> and we knew this there's was going to so happen. We, we apologize. But one of the things that ended up happening, and this happened in the 60s, is there was another... Uh, Berlin crisis and in that Berlin uh, crisis and this happened early 60s so West Berlin was doing so much better economically than East Berlin and what was happening is a lot of people from East Berlin were just moving to West Berlin because it, it was better for them mm -hmm. and the Soviets hated that so what they ended up doing was building a wall so that nobody could cross and they started putting troops at you know the intersections and whatever so they built this wall which in theory it was actually like two walls or whatever but they built this wall around west berlin this was 96 miles they, they of wall built it around west berlin yeah i thought they built it around east berlin no because it because basically oh, they're just trying to I mean, they're trying to stop. So you got the kind of the the border between yep. the east and west Berlin. And I know about but that. But they wanted to just to, Berlin How is did they in allow east them Germany. To do that? Like, I mean, what are you going to do? Like what happened? Nobody even knew it was coming. People wake up one day and there was barbed wire. But it's like a for wall. real fence. Like well, so it started with barbed wire, uh, and then as they built it out, and it I was see. a real fence. Like that it, does make this was ninety six miles of a thirteen foot tall wall. This was a, and not only that, they ended up putting it under twenty-four hour yeah. watch. And before it came down, there were three hundred two watchtowers. And if anybody was caught crossing, oh, they got shot. And they shot many, many, many people. Yeah, there were hundreds of people mm -hmm. who got shot crossing the wall. Hundreds of people who got shot at like there. There were intersections that were guarded that got shot trying to cross that. There were people who tried to tunnel their way. Yep. And one of the things that I always this is the argument if you're talking about, say, communism versus, like, capitalism. Nobody tried to go from West Berlin to East Berlin. <laughs> Nobody. I, there had to have been, like, somebody going to get their family. Like, because when it, you said it was put up very quickly. It was put up quickly. And so people couldn't But all the family sides. that I know, what the, all the stories that I saw were the East trying to get into the West. Like, yeah. if you're separated, don't make the... You know, these guys, you know, come to yeah. East Berlin. We'll go to West Berlin. And people were digging tunnels and doing whatever else trying to get over. That's why I thought that the wall went around the other way. Because if they have enc encapsulated West Berlin, yeah. I thought that people needed to get out. Because I've heard all those stories. Yeah. And that sounded more like an East Berlin story than it did. So if you can just walk around the freaking wall and go around, you know, but they're trying to get in. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it and and that wall stays up until uh, essentially the fall Night, of yeah, communism. The fall, so the when it, when the wall comes down, <laughs> the cold war. things are kind of at the end. So mm -hmm. the wall went up, and it was it was really a, a huge deal. In fact, there were times I think when there were uh, there was a conflict where there were tanks lined up on both sides fighting, you know, facing off. They didn't fire, yeah. but some East Germans were taking papers of like u.s diplomats and the diplomats were like you can't do this and they're like, oh yeah we can and so there was this standoff that happened and and i've seen pictures you know people who did make the crossing you know they get they cross and 
the West Berlin, you know, army or guards or whatever protects them. So once they get across, they get protected. So there were there was one picture in particular that I saw, and some lady is down on her knees behind the West Berlin guards. You know, she oh. made it and they stepped in, but a lot, lot of people, hundreds oh. of people, didn't make it, and they they were shot. There was also like a a mined corridor of land in some places between the two. So that was a pretty uh, that was a pretty big thing that we kind of skipped over. That that is it's a critical piece. It's a critical piece, mm-hmm. and it's it's also a very visible one because one of the things you know Ronald Reagan does is tear down this wall. Yeah. You know, speech towards the end. Well, and I think for uh, you know people who have been alive that long, that was a memorable part of history. I think that there are yeah. more people alive that remember that portion than than maybe some of the ones that happened. Yeah, for sure, because that's one that I remember. I remember it as well. And people would talk about, you know, I got a chunk of the wall. Yeah, and that was a big deal. And I didn't, I was young, but I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so neat. Yeah. Like, I remember being really happy about it. So, anyway, getting back to this, uh, there was an operation called Able Archer uh, where every year they would have this military exercise. Well, in 1983, they decided, this, this is, from an official document that was released is they decided to have three days of what they called low-spectrum conventional, you know, play, followed by two days of high-spectrum nuclear warfare. So what they started doing, they were simulating a nuclear attack. And they don't simulate it against Russia. They simulate it against country orange is what they, and, but it's all, and Russia sees it. They see, I see your planes have <laughs> nuclear weapons on them. You got all this communication. They also brought over, I, I think they had like I, like Margaret Thatcher and a bunch of other people were invited to come over. And, and so they know, like, this is not your normal exercise. Something is going on. And in response, they load up their planes with their nuclear weapons. And what happens is one of the lieutenants on the U.S. side kind of sees. They needed to pick up the red phone. I know. They needed to they pick needed up the red phone. Say, it, we're just doing this. Yeah. Oh, these are just going to be drills. warning shots. Do not. <laughs> That's right. Do not the respond. The warning shots. Don't worry about it. But, he, you know, he ends up saying, hey, this is, you know, we might have put our relationships on this hair trigger now with USSR. And I think this was one of the events that triggered um Reagan to kind of change policy. So he wrote something, you know, three years had taught me something surprising about the Russians is that many people at the top of the Soviet hierarchy were genuinely afraid of American-Americans. And he didn't know that. You know, he, he thought Americans are afraid of the Soviets. He didn't realize that it was the same thing. So, you know, he in in his mind, the Americans are the good guys and they would never do anything you know, to start war. Well, that's what Soviets thought. You know, I've been watching a lot of his stuff for some reason lately. A lot of his discussions. And, yeah. And some of his speeches. And he really seemed like somebody who really tried to understand. He really seemed like a good guy. Yeah. And uh, luckily, so, you know, in, in 1985, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev takes power in the USSR. And he seems like a pretty good guy. So him mm, and yes. Reagan meet. And actually things, this is where the beginning of the end starts to really happen yes. for the Cold War. Because Gorbachev adopts some policies that are called perestroika and glasnost. Mm-hmm. Perestroika means like rebuilding. And what that meant was... Um, we're, we're going to open up, we're going to try the, kind of the Western market system. You know, we won't tell farmers what to grow. Farmers will grow whatever is best for farmers to grow. We won't tell you what price to sell your goods at. We won't, you know, tell you, we're not going to run the economy. We're going to let the economy kind of run itself. And that was so brand new. Like I found a quote from somebody that some people were talking about what was happening at this time, and, you know, people living in, you know, Russia and Ukraine and other places. And one of the people was saying, you know, it, this was so new to people, they didn't know what to do. They, This person went into a store. There's toilet paper for, you know, in the store. He said, I, I would like to buy that toilet paper. And the guy, I don't know how much it costs. Like the store owner won't sell him toilet paper. He says, nobody told me how much to sell it for. Like, I don't know. And there's a British guy that's in there. And he's like, 
I'll give you twenty dollars for the toilet paper. Like I, I, I don't, I don't know how to sell you the toilet paper. Mm-hmm. And so that like people did not know how. They were so used to everything they did was kind of dictated to them, and it actually didn't really go that well for them. Like the you know the people didn't know how to handle this, and in addition they had the the glasnos, which meant like openness is, you know we're not gonna do the same things. You know the, like the Stalin stuff the is secret. over. In fact, they started putting out like, just so you know, Soviet history. This is what Stalin was doing. Nobody knew that stuff. Yeah, that was hidden until now. And, the, you know, from that same thing where they were talking, people talking about living through it, somebody was saying, uh, you know, I was going to school, and I would go into school, and the, the very next day they would come back and say, what I told you yesterday was wrong. And the very next day they'd be like, oh, sorry, that was wrong. Because the, they're just learning all this stuff about their own history that they had no idea, that this stuff was just barely That's coming amazing. out. So they start learning a lot of... I, it, think, I think that has a lot... To say about the Eastern European and, and Russian areas even to this day. When yep. you go over there and you visit, the older generations are very suspicious and they're very, um, like, because they trusted and then that trust was broken, which is a huge... Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. No. Like, it's really hard for me, like, talk, the, the store story where the guy doesn't know how to sell yeah. toilet paper kind of blows my mind. Like, but their entire life—if you didn't sell what they were told you to do—you were in trouble. So it was really hard. Nobody knew how to handle this, and one of the unfortunate things was because nobody. There were a handful of people who got rich, and the rest of the people got poorer. Yeah. So the, a lot of people exploited the system, and it was really—it's it, tragic. And to this day, are still yeah rolling in their. Uncle Scrooge style money bins. Yeah, if you ever hear, you know, the Russian oligarchs or yep. whatever, these are the people who were able to come out of this with tons of property and goods and, you know, because all that stuff was state owned. And then when they're like, okay, it's not going to be state owned anymore, the people who knew how to get it got it all, and the common people got nothing. Just to put this in a bit of perspective, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, there were a lot of oligarch assets that were um seized seized yeah and they had these yachts that they would seize and they cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars a day oh okay just to take care of these yachts that they seized and they're like uh (laughs) uh whoops so it ended up costing so much money just to seize these people's property yeah, it it was it, it to me it was tragic what yeah. happened because you there know, was it, a, an opportunity that was missed for sure, and it, who knows what that other opportunity would have looked like, but it was definitely missed. Yeah, so Gorbachev comes into power, Reagan's in power, and they start kind of working in a lot more friendly manner, and then you know with the the Glasnost and the Perestroika. Things start changing in, you know, not just Russia, but all the communist countries. And a lot of them start, you know, now that I'm able to say stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. now that I'm not being oppressed and, you know, have my speech suppressed, people start talking and protests start happening. And a lot of these, you know, satellite countries or the buffer countries or whatever you want to call them start saying, you know, we don't want to be a part of this anymore. So you start having these protests and they, you know, some of them start happening, small protests are happening in like, you know, 86, 87. But once you get to 89, it's massive protests. And they start happening every, you know, in in all the countries. So one of the other interesting things that happened in 89 was that CNN was allowed to broadcast into Russia. Before, like, no Western media was allowed. That's right. And CNN was allowed in, and it was initially only allowed in, like, this one hotel. But people figured out how to get access. And so people started seeing life outside Russia. And realistically, their quality of life was so much lower. And now they're seeing that, that mm-hmm. it it has an effect on, on the people. 
So these protests start happening, hundreds of thousands of people in place, you know, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Romania, Ukraine, and you know, all these places start having, you know, protests. In 1989, people start tearing down the Berlin Wall, and the fall of the USSR is at hand. You know, this is really interesting because, you know, when I when I watch things from Gorbachev or when I hear about him because I don't speak Russian, but um, he he seems like a nice guy, right? He seems like an Americanly friendly nice guy. I'm an American. I kind of understand where he's coming from. Reagan seems really nice, but the people, a lot of people in his own government, did not like what he was doing. Oh, for sure. Because keep in mind, you know what he's doing to them is close to blasphemy like treason like he yeah. he's shifting everything that they've already lost a bunch of lives for everything that they've been fighting for he's like actually i kind of like the way the enemy's doing it you know <laughs> so, <laughs> you're like uh oh. so all of these people are angry and they don't like gorbachev anymore and um they kind of start shifting because of all of the protests and because of all the power, they're kind of trying to figure out the power dynamic of the area now. And um, there was even a time at the very end. Do you have anything to say before I start talking about the very end? Because I have some stuff after, but I think okay. I know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's kind of the next on the list. Okay, so. good. So on August 18th of 1991... President Mikhail Gorbachev is placed under house arrest from a coup of his own high-ranking members of his own government because they did not appreciate what he had been doing. So the military, the police, they all put him under house arrest. And during this time, Boris Yeltsin takes this opportunity to rally the people and he he gets a lot of favor from the people from the way he does this. Like, he gets up on a tank. He's, like, it, it, I want to use the term romancing the people, where he's just sort of, you know, putting on an amazing show, and they release Gorbachev. Oh, God. I just read my note about the KGB, which is a totally <laughs> other, other thing that, that distracts me. And Gorbachev then resigns. So Gorbachev and Yeltsin go back to Moscow, and the people are happy that Boris Yeltsin is back. Yes. And they're not, Gorbachev's in the background, and he kind of sees, and, and he resigns for Boris Yeltsin. And, well, what really happens that's kind of confusing but interesting to me is they're, they're giving um, Boris Yeltsin a position in charge of Russia. So yeah, then... so, so one of the things that actually happened before is um, the the Communist Party voted to end the one-party rule. Yes. You know, like, so they're like, oh, we have elections, but only one party is allowed to, you know, run. Only our party can run. You have to choose between which of us you like. So they end that, and Boris Yeltsin gets voted in as um, the head of... The head of the Soviet... Well, it's head of the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist yes. Republic. So mm -hmm. it's just a piece of, it's the Russian piece of the, the communist, you know, USSR. Yes. So he's in that position when the coup attempt happens. Yes. And then that's why Gorbachev resigns and that dissolves yeah. the USSR. So, so every country is now its own country again. It's not... It's not the, the USSR. United, yeah. Um, and so... But when he does this, this is on, like, Christmas Day. Oh, I didn't even have the date down yeah, on that one. Yeah, it's on December 25th, and um, he gives his powers over to Yeltsin, like the ones that are over Russia, Republic, blah, 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 blah. Yep. <laughs> when he, he gives those powers over to Yeltsin, and he kind of bows out. And I one of the fascinating parts of this is I was looking at, when I was researching, I was looking at what people look back at him and think of him today. And he is a very disliked historic person 
for the current day Russia. For people in Russia. Mm -hmm. Because they felt like he weakened Russia. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and realistically, like, if you look at kind of the economic things that happened, he, he did, in a way. And, and what's weird is, so Boris Yeltsin came in. Well, he did, but part of that is because of, of those oligarchs that we spoke of. Yeah, and, and part of it really is, you know, th this is a brand new system, and nobody knows how to live it. Yes. So this is not, you know, they're not doing it the same as people have been doing it for hundreds of years. They're coming in brand new, and their people don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to sell toilet paper right. You know, they don't, they don't know what they're doing, and so things get bad. They're, they're just barely being introduced to the concept of, you know, free speech and other things like that, and they don't know how to handle that. And so people are, um, you know, used to being kind of led around, and now they're in charge of themselves, and they don't act. They don't do it well. Yeah, they're not doing it well. And so but, they, and, but they had very strong emotions, and so they were they were happy to feel very loyal to their government. Yeah. They were very happy to feel very angry at the opposition. But when it came to these other things, they didn't know how to do it. But um, when you look at the comments, they say that overall people think that he sold their country to the West. Like, people who were love the USSR, which there are still. Yeah. I mean, Putin still loves the USSR, and he's <laughs> he's old. And um, they hate him. People who uh, were Western and liked the West didn't think he was Western enough. They hate him. And See, that's interesting, because I thought he was generally liked by the West. Like, he was times man I mean, of the year, I mean, like the one year. But... in... Russia. Oh, like the, the Russian West, people. Didn't okay. think he was enough. But he ended up kind of, in a way, being an oligarch. Like, he, he got a bunch of assets. He got to do whatever he wanted with them. And um, people hate him. Yeah, th that one's interesting because to me, I, and this might be where you start looking, you know, this might be conditioning or whatever, how I was raised or whatever, but I really like Gorbachev. Cause I do too. He brought, you know, the, the perestroika and the glasnost and whatever. Like, like, that's what I would want. You know, I don't want the government to come in and tell me what I can say and what I can do and, the, you know, to yeah. hide everything they're doing. And then, so to me, like, he's kind of a hero. But when to... you have a population that is gigantic and uneducated, yeah, like, that requires a different kind of leadership. And I'm not saying Stalin was a good leader. I'm not saying that they had good leadership. But I'm just saying maybe he wasn't the right guy for the type of people he had. And, and that definitely could be the case because if you do look, like I was saying, like economically things didn't go well for him doing this. No. You know, he kind of thought, oh, we're, we're going to become the West and uh -huh. under his rule which was from like 85 to 90 91 whatever um he the the economy didn't do well like he didn't improve the economy the economy got worse and even after he left you know that's when they're dealing with all these people who are, are are essentially stealing what was formerly the state property and making it their own and becoming these oligarchs they they have all this corruption so they're to me, the problem isn't the system, it's the corruption, but when you have, the, they, they were able to stop the corruption with, with these heavy-handed leaders. You have a Stalin in there, the only person who gets to be corrupt is Stalin, because anybody else gets put down. Anybody who crosses any line that Stalin doesn't like doesn't exist. So it, it's kind of, yeah. have you heard the, the Vlad, you know, the Impaler thing in Romania? Sure. A lot of people were saying, we want that type of leader back because we have all this crime and nobody knows how to handle it. Yeah. So we want the person who crime doesn't exist under their rule because they don't allow it to exist. Yeah. And that's kind of the Stalinist sort of thing. Well, but... different areas of the world just have totally different cultures and totally different rules that they're willing to accept. And, and I think, you know, because we came from Britain and Britain was very rule oriented yeah a lot of america's um up until recently <laughs> has been very rule oriented which i mean if you 
drive in a different, not, not so much. So I'm thinking of Africa in particular, because I have, I've been on the roads there. It's chaos because the rule of the road doesn't really matter as much as getting where you're going to go. And, and it's just, it's, it's kind of interesting to think that one type of government would work in all of these different types of places. So I wonder if they're doing better now under Putin, who has now put himself in as like a leader until he dies. Yeah, which it's really hard to say because they go poll people in Russia. How do you like Putin? 80% of the people say they like Putin. Oh, well, but, they're not going to tell you they don't right, like Right, that's the problem is when you don't have that level of openness, when you're not allowed to say what you think, how do you know whether or not you can't ask the Russians? You can, <laughs> so you can judge. Based, I wouldn't like it. No. I think it's terrible. So to me, Putin's terrible. But I don't know what it would be like. You know, well, they're if more. Ed- they're there. a more educated group now. However, I did watch a YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have it on high authority. Facts. I have like the, the yes, where someone put a, a hidden camera inside a a Russian elevator. Oh, yeah, I've seen Did those. you see that? And they put the picture of Putin up yeah. there and to see people's reactions. And they're, like, flipping him up and, and scoffing and, uh, like, it's yeah. really funny. <laughs> to me, those are the exact sort of things that I get afraid of with, you know, like any government, you know, particularly my government. Because yeah. I'm not, as selfish as I am, it's hard for me to worry about the Russians. You yeah, know, like is. oh, whatever happens, you know, it's tragic. I always feel bad for what I you know, call the common people because they don't have any control. You know, they, they don't get. You can say, oh, I, I don't like Putin. I'm going to get him out. Yeah, good luck. You know, yeah. like what? What is somebody like, you know, me over in Russia going to do to get Putin out? So if the it, there's a there's a book that's out that was written by a, a Polish guy who went who lived under the Nazis and the uh, communists. And he says there's a concept called Ketman, and all it is is whatever the people in power say, you say. Like, you don't you don't disagree. You just, yep, you don't have to believe it. You just yeah, I like Putin. Putin's doing a great job for the country, and, and to me, you know you want to avoid that. But he says in these authoritarian places, it doesn't matter Nazi, communist, whatever. Wherever you have these authoritarians, that's what happens. Is you kind of get stuck. You have to kind of abandon all your own ideas in public or else bad things happen to you. I feel like in a way that's happening now. I kind of think so too. Mm-hmm. Like, like, And it's not the same degree. You know, you don't end up in the gulag, but no, they're but like, you definitely you're get... off Twitter, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. You, you know, we're going to send this army of people to uh, harass you on online if you say anything online well, or even in person. Yeah. You know, people are getting shouted down. If you wear a, a red hat with some words on it, yeah. you can be definitely told that that's not okay and discriminated against. And and it's funny because I, I saw a video of, uh, it, it was at a college, and it was these college students that were yelling at this guy. And, and the guy, I'm pretty sure he was from India, but he could have been, you know, Pakistan. I don't I know. I know where. the guy. Uh-huh. But, but they're yelling at him, you fascist, you fascist. He's like, no, you fascist. Uh-huh. If they you look at what the fascist, fascists did, they, they would show up and yell down is. anybody <laughs> that would, uh, you know, express an idea different from them. Yep. That's what you do. Yep. That's not what I do. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. And uh, it really... They don't know what it is. They've just heard the term. But it really has... You know, I was thinking on this back in the 1980s and in the 70s when everyone was, you know, turning in their neighbors for being communists and everyone was a little afraid of because they had implanted in the KGB um, agents that were like American citizens, and that's its own gigantic mountain. And just, I I feel like we haven't been this on edge about how we speak since then. It's weird to me, because part of me, I don't feel like I'm too on edge about, you know, what I speak, but I quit my job because uh, yeah. I, I honestly just felt like, like, this is pretty oppressive what you guys are doing. And mm-hmm. I don't know that you understand it, but it it blows my mind the level of 
I, I think of it as oppression that's happening now yeah. that I'd never seen before. I didn't, I didn't even believe it would ever exist in the oh, U.S. Oh, no. This is bizarre. It is. It this is, is. This is. Crazy bizarre. I mean, I feel like maybe I don't know. Like, sometimes I'm like, hey, maybe I just don't understand. Maybe this is happening over there. And yet I think, but it wasn't happening here. Like, I, it wasn't happening in my, in my circle, in my world. And, and now you can't have a conversation the same way that you used to. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. It, 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 it's concerning to me. And there's a lot of stuff like when I, you know, go through and I start looking at a lot of this Cold War stuff. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things in history where, you know, like in the Bay of Pigs sort of thing where yeah. we're painting our planes. You know, I think, yeah, that's that's pretty terrible. You know, that that seems yep. exactly the sort of thing that you would think that the, you know, the dirty commies are doing. Well, But that's what I think now with a lot of the stuff is what we're doing. That's what that's what the commies would do. You know, that's what the, you know, we were trained to think that these people are the enemy and that what they did was terrible. Well, we're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing, we're suppressing people's speech and we have government influence over, you know, the news and what's on Twitter and oh, whatever. Yeah. And Just, it, it blows my mind. It though. has, it's shifted in a way that is so far from what the, the original intent of our government was supposed to be. Yeah, I, I still think it's a good place, but I just, I I, I definitely weird. think it's a good place, but you can kind of tell. I I think it was Reagan. I don't remember for sure, but somebody had said a quote. You know, the the U.S. or anyone, everybody is always just one generation away from tyranny. Yeah, like it. You don't. It, it can happen at any time, and so I see a lot of stuff now that concerns me, and I don't know what to do about it. But there's a lot of things that I think. You know, if you go look at what we say, you know, the Russians were doing, you know, one of the things that I saw not too long ago was like in Australia, they were saying, you know, if you hear anybody talking about, you know, far right conspiracies, you tell us. Yeah. I think that's exactly what they would well, do. Well, and in after these the January six, and they they're like, turn in, you know, yeah, turn in your neighbors, anybody that's ever said anything about this, turn them in, turn them. In. And people were super happy to do that, which is fine. I'm okay. It's people, not really fine. But if people read break history windows, books, <laughs> I'm okay with that part. Like, oh, you get in trouble for breaking the windows. But, but it wasn't. It wasn't that. It was turning into like your ideology made you a yeah. villain. Like, and well, the other thing that I find weird, kind of interesting, and I don't want to apply it to any particular group or anything (laughs) but if you go back and look you know you don't get out of communism until you have thousands of people in the street yeah you know and and that wasn't entirely true because some of the places did but you know they you know poland and hungary and wherever else it it takes hundreds of thousands it takes tons of people together working together to get out of some of these tyrannical governments so when I see things like the January 6th, to me, I don't think they were in the right. But I think, I how do you do, you know, like, if you were under a tyranny. Mm-hmm. And they thought they were. And they thought they were. Because I also, this is one of the things that I think, you know, from somebody from my perspective who doesn't know everything that's going on, doesn't, you know, uh, essentially I'm spoon-fed the news from whatever <laughs> sources. Uh, like, I don't. Twitter. So, I mean, I'm not even on Twitter, so where am I? I get my news from. I, it, but I watch stuff like that, and I think I watched the January 6th thing on television. Yep. And to me, that doesn't seem like an insurrection or a coup. But the day after, they had 13,000 armed troops surrounding the Capitol. Like, <laughs> that's what a coup would look like if you were asking me. Like, if I didn't know any better, I'd be like, hey. That, that guy. Oh, see, so to I, me, January like, 6th was like, what the heck? Like, it wasn't what, what the heck, doing? but to me but it was. There, there wasn't enough backing them that it was more than just a what the heck to me. Like, And they like, left. Like, like, you know, one yeah. of the things I think, if you can they put down a rebellion home. with a <laughs> megaphone saying, I'm going to give you a ticket for curfew if you don't go home. They broke stuff. They did. Mm-hmm. But. But I want you to know, I'm just, I just. It was not only them breaking stuff that year, like, or that year, I guess, it was January 6th, but 
in the 12 months. Like, it was a mess everywhere. Yeah, and I still think there's a lot of mess, but what always scares me is if you don't allow people to do something, how, if you end up under a tyrannical government, how do you get out? Yeah. If you basically beaten the resistance out of people, how do you get out? You know, they, they talk about the, the purges that happen, you know, when all these people kind of take power and they get rid of all opposition. When they talk about it in history, those are the, you know, evil, bad people. Yeah. And then you kind of see things like, okay, if you're taking out all your opposition, then you know, maybe you're not the good guy. But at the same time, I also think, you know, if you went and... But it's it's just like Vietnam and Korea and all those things. Like in Afghanistan, we just take turns at who's the bad guy yeah. and who's the good guy. You just like super showy when you're the good guy and you sneak when you're the bad guy. And that's disappointing. Yeah, you never want your country to be, uh, you know, are, are we the baddies? Or are we the bad guys? Though it would be nice if more leadership question themselves sometimes. For sure. Yeah. In fact, like that to me, what you want is better leadership. Yeah. You know, honest leadership who, you know, the parties to me don't, I don't care about parties. I care about people who are like, okay, let's do what's good for the country yeah. and what's good for people. You know, we say we care about liberty. Let's, let's mean it. You know, when you're in the, you know, the Senate or the Congress, you should keep that stuff in mind when you're making laws. But So I had one last thing that I wanted to bring up. Do it. And it was, it, this was in 1989, Boris Yeltsin came over to the U.S. and uh, they, they started taking him around there and they took him to a supermarket. And some people credit that with like the fall of communism is they're seeing what the, all the average people have because the average people in Russia didn't have any of that. In fact, yeah. a lot of times they were under like rations and they were allowed to have certain amounts of, you know, food and whatever. And they're coming here and seeing everybody Bullshit. has access to way a more. A lot of snacks and goodies. Yeah. And, and I... I just thought it was amusing, you know, that some people credit that with the fall of communism was to bring over one of their leaders and be like, and, and it wasn't even, I don't even think it was, it was let me show you how cool it is. It was just, hey, let's, you know, take you out and show you what our what America <laughs> is like. And, and it just turned out that that was so different than what they knew that they're like, maybe we're doing it wrong over there. Yeah. And there was another story about some spies that, um, defected from Russia and, and got housed in Florida and they thought you know this is a fancy place that they're putting you know just for us <laughs> and they didn't realize that that's what that's how everybody lived you know everybody had that access to those stores and to that level of you know freedom they thought it was you know we were super special until they went out and saw this is just average ordinary life but I think that was it for our cold, cold war. war thanks everybody for listening and see you next time